Welcome to episode 108 of The Climate Champions. Check out past episodes on theclimatechampions.com. I'm Lee Crevat, host of The Climate Champions. If you or someone you know is a climate champion, please let me know at crevatenergyinnovations.com. This week, my featured guest is Nico Johnson, a 15-year solar industry veteran, a podcaster extraordinaire, an investor, an advisor, an executive coach, a mentor to many, all focused on mitigating climate change and helping others to do the same. Through Suncast Media and his twice-weekly flagship, Suncast Podcast, which you've got to check out, Nico interviews the top thought leaders and change agents at the helm of the global transition to renewable energy, and as such, illuminates the career path for thousands of eager professionals who want to make a difference and leave the world better off. He believes the greatest weapon we have to fight climate change is our voice and he helps people to find their own. This podcast is being brought to you in part by the Department of Energy's Advanced Grid Research Group, whose purpose is to accelerate innovation in electric transmission and distribution technologies and create next-generation devices, software, and tools to help modernize the electric grid. All right, welcome to Climate Champions. I'm here today with my guest, Lee Crevat. <laughs> There's not going to be like a hot sauce challenge. No. <laughs> welcome to the Climate Champions. I'm Lee Crevat. I'm here with Nico Johnson at Nico Johnson's residence. He's a 15-year veteran of the solar industry, a professional podcaster, an investor, a coach, all focused on helping folks find their mission with regard to climate change. Lee, it really is a pleasure. I'm honored that you've traveled all the way to North Carolina to hang out with me. And I'm, I'm overjoyed to get a chance to speak to the climate champions. Yeah, that's why I came just to hang out with you. <laughs> but it is my first face-to-face podcast in about two years. Well, I am slowly getting back into face-to-face podcasting myself, and it feels, I hope that I can help you feel comfortable in this, in this environment, because I remember how weird it felt the first time I did, about a month and a half, two months ago, the first time I did my first back-to-in-person. It was really uncomfortable, so I hope that you aren't, you don't feel that way today. <laughs> it's weird sitting down across from anybody that's not part of my family, to yeah. tell you the truth now. Yeah. Well, thank you for the trust that is in, inherent in the whole process. Absolutely. Fellow podcasters, yeah, man. man. Yeah. Nico, you have put so much of yourself into helping to mitigate climate change. What was your motivating moment? I just had like a wave of emotion. Um, hmm. Give me a minute. Take your time. Unanticipated. Lee, I don't know that I can distill it in a moment, but in my 20s, I made an alternative choice of my own in my career to be a Peace Corps volunteer. And before that, I was going to be in the music industry, or I thought I'd be a banker or something climbing the corporate ladder. And after two and a half years working in this remote fishing village in Guatemala, 
literally a month before my close of service, a hurricane hit. And I didn't know it then, but it was a defining moment in my relatively young professional life and, and career. I'd still not been introduced to renewables, but it was the first time I was confronted with the catastrophe that, in particular, small coastal villages in rural parts of the world are facing every single day that they have no control over. And they, unlike you and I, have almost no upward mobility. They are stuck there. And the town I lived in was on a little, a little peninsula. It was kind of like an island. Water on all sides, except one, obviously. And that hurricane flooded town. I remember walking around town in up to my knees in water for three days. There wasn't a dry place in town. I remember bringing international aid into town just so that people could have uh, clean water, food, replaced clothes, and 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 medical care. We brought in a doctor, and people were dealing with you know just things that we take for granted. They didn't have a way to deal with the fungus that invariably grows on your feet when they're wet for three days because you can't get out of the water. And they didn't have access to electricity. Uh, those that did, uh, did not take it for granted. And it's only in retrospect that I look back and realize that that moment, it unsettled me. And it reminded me the privilege I was born into. And so when I came back to the States, I took it as an obligation to find a way to at least create awareness, if not create change. And when I came home from the Peace Corps, I really took it upon myself to explore how could I contribute to sustainability broadly, because the things that I was seeing that were contributing to what I didn't know how to put words into at the time, this was pre-Al Gore, Inconvenient Truth. I realized that the way we were growing industrially was contributing to this discrepancy in life uh, experiences and that these folks deserved a way to, uh, they deserved a better future and they deserved a way to mitigate this and they, they really had no options. So when I think about the inception point of awareness of climate change, it was then, 2005, I think it was Hurricane Mitch, I don't remember the exact name, but it had a profound impact on the way I think about our obligation as a developed nation, my obligation as a privileged white man who has more access to things like podcasts and people who can make who can make difference. I think that, that actually thank you for asking me that question because I don't think I've so profoundly thought about it before having the opportunity to talk with you about it. I'm glad I got a chance to ask that. So that was the inception point. What are your drivers now? What fuels you? Hmm. I speak with a lot of professionals in the industry, in particular those who are not necessarily in the renewable sector. They're not in the clean energy revolution, as my friends and I call it. They are in well-meaning careers that have relatively run into dead ends. In particular, our colleagues in energy who dedicated their life and career to oil and gas, and basically you know, creating a solid base of power for all of us to enjoy the industrial complex that gave us the freedom and flexibility and wealth that we take for granted. And they took for granted that they'd have a career that would last them 
35, 40 years in a gold watch, and they'd be able to go into the sunset as their generations did before them. But innovation around how we deliver electrons has marginalized very, very smart folks in the industry. And what keeps me going now is that not only folks who want to figure out a way to get into the clean energy sector because they see that solar and wind and biofuels are powering our world and and will continue to do increasingly more so, not just those folks who have the skills and talent already because they're in the energy sector and can transition over, but my parents, my, my family here in rural South, who by and large are climate deniers, I've found that renewable energy in particular, because of the economic benefit that it brings, has given me great leverage to discuss climate and climate action, not to argue climate change or anthropogenic change or impact, but to say, look, all else being equal, if you could generate your own electricity and reduce your reliance on some external force to supply the electricity that turns on your refrigerator, would you do that? And I find a lot of people saying, yeah, I want that self-reliance. I want that sort of freedom. I want to know that I'm doing the right thing. And it's a side door, if you will, into a longer conversation that you have to accept is not going to be one Thanksgiving lunch. It's a longer arc of a conversation with in a community of people who, who also care about their community and also care about their heritage and their legacy. And the consumer generally doesn't think about how they generate electricity. And so what, keep, what keeps me engaged in this is that there are so many people that we have an opportunity to, I'll say convert, but to enlighten about ways, not just renewable energy, but ways that they can personally take action towards a climate that their grandchildren's grandchildren can enjoy and you know a world that doesn't look like bubble cities and pumped in oxygen. So you're a podcaster, but you're so many other things. Can you talk about all the things you're involved with to help mitigate climate change? Sure. I think that the arc of someone's career is only really by most standards defined as an arc in hindsight. Folks look back and can sort of connect the dots. I have tried, and certainly through the podcast even more so, to very intentionally curate a community around me that helps me stay relevant and and understand what's happening in the sector that I want to serve. But also, I've tried since my, since my 20s to predict where I wanted to go. When I realized that the folks that I was buying solar panels from had better understanding of the solar industry than I did. I realized that I should go work in manufacturing because in manufacturing, you get to see everything that's happening in the industry top down. Kind of like working at a utility. You get to understand how electrons are bought and sold, why they're structured the way they are, all the things that you personally enjoyed in in your career. I came from a construction background. I came from a family of nurses and farmers and carpenters. And I realized that what I am really good at is connecting dots and connecting people. And so I naturally migrated towards sales and business development. I also spent time in Latin America, so I realized there was an opportunity for me to open doors for American companies that wanted to go into Latin America and explore how the clean energy that we were deploying here could be deployed there. Slowly but surely, folks would keep coming back to me when they were transitioning. It was invariably someone would call me up that I hadn't talked to in a while, and the conversation they wanted to have was, I'm kind of at a a turning point 
or a fork in the road. I just, for some reason, Nico, I think you'd have some advice for me. And my wife finally said, you have to stop taking these calls. They're preventing you from making money for us as a family because you're on so many phone calls helping people that you are not being a good salesperson for your employer. It was around that time that I realized I'm fairly unemployable for a number of reasons that we probably don't have space to go into in this in this episode. But that the thing that I am able to be employed to do is tell others about what's happening. My best friend in high school is funny. He he was valedictorian. I was, um, I think, third or whatever. You, I don't know if there's a name for that. He was always coming up with fun ideas, but he never really told anybody about them. And he said, and I said, why don't you ever talk to people about your ideas? And he says, oh, you know, well, Christy, the salutatorian, is like my secretary, my scribe, and you know, you're like my megaphone. And I thought that was pretty prescient at 18 for him to say that because my entire career has been about putting a magnifying glass on where innovation is happening in our industry and and being able to actually vocalize it in a way that many of the innovators I meet haven't and broadcast it across mediums that they haven't figured out or didn't know existed. And so in 2016, when I decided to go out on my own, my wife made me sit down and build a business plan before I'd hire a coach. And in that business plan, I said, going to start a podcast, going to talk to people about how to get into the solar industry. Eventually, I want to have masterminds, and I want to coach people about how to build their companies, and I want to be paid as a speaker, and I want sponsors for the podcast, and I want to build courses and curriculum that can make money for us while we're sleeping. I joke about that last part only in that, you know, we all, as we get into sort of the the, the media side of the business and we start seeing all these gurus online, they talk about making money while you sleep, and they make it sound easy. You know, it was five and a half years into my six-year journey where I, before I ever made money from a course that I created. The process of becoming a coach even was one of those people who said, hey, Nico, I really like these regular calls that we have because I had reached out and said, let's hold each other accountable. And he said, I just want to be, I want to be selfish. I like the questions you ask me, and I want you to ask me questions on a regular basis and hold me to a higher standard of myself for my business so that my business can grow. And he was my first client, and... They were struggling as co-founders. They have a mission. It's an amazing mission. They want to see a 1,000 rooftops a month go solar. And I won't get into their business because it might, uh, it might expose who they are. But they went from making less than 300000 total as a business to making, we'll call it seven figures a month. Like 300000 in a year to wow. seven figures in a month in the time that I've been coaching them. I don't claim responsibility for that, but I've been able, I've been able to watch how that, works and that I had reverse engineered through the podcasting that the more insight I get into how these guys are building their companies and girls the better I would be at asking good questions as a podcaster and the better I would be as a coach and then slowly it evolved into coaching clients and podcast guests asking me if I knew anyone who was help able to help them raise money because they were going through a seed a seed round or pre-seed. And I learned all of this stuff in the last three or four years, by the way. I didn't know anything about investing, nothing. But I am a connector. So what did I do? I connected them with people I know who raise money. And as a way to sort of thank me, they would say, hey, we're going to invest in this company. Do you want to come along with, you know, do you want to come along in the round? And I was like, well, what does that mean? So my journey to being a professional podcaster instead of a professional solar project developer, which is what I did before I was podcasting, has been one of kind of like the surrender experiment, just saying yes when I'm invited into conversations with people 
with an undying curiosity. I'm an infinite learner, as Reed Hoffman would say. I have this undying curiosity to ask. I believe that we're all asking a specific question when we listen to podcasts. If you're not listening to like comedian podcasts or like true crime podcasts, if you're listening to this kind of podcast, Lee, your audience, my audience, they're asking a really interesting philosophical and esoteric question. Am I doing this right? There's a lot of insecurity and self-doubt as we try to navigate our careers. And those of us who get the chance to do something we're really good at and we get consistently paid for it, we don't necessarily recognize that the folks around us are always, I find, there's a lot of folks questioning themselves. They're not sure if they're doing it right, if they're in the right place, if they've made the right choices. Especially now. Yeah. Things are, the world is so changed from how it was before. Self reflection is at an all time high and people are trying to figure out what they're doing and where they're going. Yeah. And they have a gift. They have a gift because someone who spent his entire career in utility and innovation and launching and investing in businesses decided that he wanted to set a podcast up as a hobby because he likes audio and video and he is connected with really interesting people and he wants to help tell their stories and they get to tune into you when you tell those stories. I'm having a good time. Yeah. Nico, you talked about being a solar developer, but can you talk about your prior background? How did you get to that point? And then how did you get to where you are now? I think that in our 20s, we aren't encouraged to experiment enough. And I'm grateful for a guy in my life named Fred Kropp, who was the entrepreneur professor at the university where I got my MBA. Because when I came back from the Peace Corps, I had an opportunity to stay in the music industry where I had been for the you know first 15 years of my career, which started really early because I was in the music industry. And I had an opportunity to work uh, with the Monterey Jazz Festival. And I had another opportunity to work with a local entrepreneur who didn't really have a, much, a, a really solid plan of a business, but he was a really intriguing guy. And I went to Fred Kropp because he was a mentor and professor for me. And I said, what would you do in this scenario? And he said, experiment. He said, you, you, know, you know what you know about the, in, the music industry. What's six months of your life? You're 20-something. Go experiment with this thing called solar energy. And I'm internally grateful that he gave me that, that freedom. I went on with Ed to found a company in Monterey, California, offering solar to residential and commercial customers. That turned into moving to a company, I, I left that business and went to a company that was selling solar to commercial customers because I figured that's a, like, I just saw that as a bigger opportunity to make change. It was moving more kilowatts. And then that business really expanded. We served Sun Edison, one of the biggest customers and or developers in the industry. And I saw, like, I just started making friends with people who were financing all of these deals and who were selling solar modules in all these deals. And back, back, back then I said, you know, I really want to get better visibility on the industry. And so I went to Trina Solar, at the time, maybe top five solar manufacturer. And in the two years I was there, we went to number one in the world, uh, not by my doing, uh, but went to number one in the world. So I got to ride that, that train and watch what it looks like for a major Asian manufacturer to, to deploy this technology at scale. It also allowed me visibility into exactly what kinds of developers were doing well and what kinds were failing. And I was invited by one of the ones that was doing well to leave Trina and go to their team to do what I had been really interested about, which was develop solar projects. 
So over the course of about 10 years, from 2006 to 2016, I basically did everything from turning the wrenches and installing the wires and modules on the first solar project I sold for Jim Campbell out in Carmel Valley, California. That's where I live. Is it really? I live in Carmel Valley, San Diego. Oh, right on. That's hilarious. <laughs> Through to selling tens of megawatts of solar panels and then eventually developing hundreds of megawatts of solar projects and then being sort of siloed in by, by self-selection, the Latin America sector, part of our industry, which just didn't have the cadence and the, and the throughput of projects that the United States did. And recognizing that I was missing a big thing, which is like the ability to pattern match on seeing dozens or hundreds of deals a month. I was seeing, you know, five to 10 deals a month. Uh, so there was a reckoning there. And actually, as a developer, like the vision I was working with in Latin America got shut down because it just wasn't as, it didn't prove as fruitful an experiment for the company I was working for as the other places they were placing, placing bets. And when I was relieved of duty on that front line, uh, I had to ask myself, where do I actually want to add value, right? So the backstory is musician who thought he would end up in Nashville cutting records ends up in Oakland, California cutting deals and really like, as we say in the industry, slinging solar modules for, you know, the better part of my 30s. And I've spent since age 36, I guess, 2016 to now, six years, obsessively, obsessively, seeking to tell the story of the clean tech entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs, founders, and executives that are building what I think is the greatest story of our time, the energy transition. The energy grid itself was voted on as the most important invention mm -hmm. of the 1900s. Yeah. And the transition is going to be the most important change that we make to the world yeah. this, this century. It's phenomenal. You know, uh, I recently read Bill Nussie's book, Freeing Energy, which is just a treasure trove. He spent four and a half years. This is a guy who took two businesses public. He sold a company to IBM. Um, and one of the ways that he process hacks to get into an industry is he writes a book about it. And this one took him four. It took about three years longer than he thought it would. Four years. It took, I think, four and a half. In the process of learning this industry and creating a podcast and writing a book, he did a ton of research, as you'd, as you'd imagine. He interviewed uh, luminaries in the industry among them, Amory Lovins, you know, folks that we look to as real thinkers and um, thought leaders. And in the beginning part of his book, he has this really cool comparison. From 1956 to 1995, we spent $549 billion building the road systems in the United States. We spent about a trillion dollars building the internet. Do you know what Morgan Stanley estimates that the energy transition is going to be? $16 trillion. Do you know what uh, Secretary Granham has countered with, it's not 16 trillion. She said, but t between now, 2021, at the time of this taping, and 2030, nine years, the industry will deploy $23 trillion. If that's not a mind numbing, just a staggering number, then I don't know what is. In comparison with 40 years and 549 build, billion to build the US road system. Is that adjusted for inflation? I don't know. That's a great... See, that's a question that you would ask. I didn't ask that question. Because <laughs> that, that plays with the numbers a bit. You can make numbers say a lot of things. Sure, but let's... I mean, so what, what do you think $549 billion over a course of 40 years looks like in trillions now? Three, four? I really don't know. I don't know. But I know that it, 
we have to make this transition. And so whatever the cost is, yeah. we just have to pay it. Yeah. And it isn't really paying because a lot of it will make money. That's exactly It right. goes into jobs. That's, it it, it goes up. into cleaning our environment and letting us continue as a planet. So it's a bargain. Exactly. And it opens up access to things that we can't yet fathom or imagine in the way that connecting all of the towns in America did, right? And we're going to connect all those towns again in a distributed way. And all of those families are going to actually be able to transact energy peer to peer. Like that's, that is a, it is, it is almost a virtual reality that we're going to see that. It's really a question of how and like how profound will it be? Will it be on a neighborhood level? Will it be like on an ISO level? Who knows? But I, I want to pause for a second and say, what was the original question? <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanted you to tell me about your prior background, and you did. But responding to what you just talked about, here's my prediction. I think we're going to have a network mm. of microgrids. Yeah. And so that in your home, you'll be able to survive, if the sun is shining, certainly, on solar and your EV, because you'll tap yes. your battery when there's no sun. That won't be your preferred method, because then you might have to conserve Right. And you probably don't want to always have to conserve, especially if we have a clean grid. Right. But you'll be able to do that. Mm -hmm. And then I think there'll be points at where your microgrid that you have in your house connects with all your neighbors, and maybe your circuit is a microgrid. Yeah. And maybe the city or town is a microgrid. And it just builds up until we have a grid for the U.S. But every piece of it can live on its own when it needs to because of an issue. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Microgrid is, for me, the it is the... It's the vision of distributed generation that makes sense to me. Yeah. And if you look, those experiments are not experiments anymore. They're reality in places like Hawaii and Puerto Rico. I'm a microgrid guy. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah, really believe in microgrids mm -hmm. big time. I worked for a number of companies that were focused on how to make microgrids happen. So I agree. Yeah. I have a story about Hawaii that I can't tell. <laughs> <laughs> you have a lot of stories you can't tell. <laughs> Can you talk about how the pandemic affected what you're doing? It became normalized for folks to get on a Zoom call with me and for me to record it. Folks are lonelier than they ever have been. They're more isolated than they ever have been. The work that you and I do connects them in ways that we could not have imagined to a community and to a cause that many of them before the pandemic didn't know would resonate. But now they've been home, they've been able to catch up, been able to slow down, take a breath, all of a sudden for the first time in some of their lives in places like Asia, that taking of a breath in India is through clean air because there's just not as much smog. It's returning now, unfortunately, but the pandemic showed in numbers, in data, we're choking the earth. Because for the first time we saw a reversal in you know, smog index in places like Chennai and Bangalore. So the message and the flag that you and I have been waving for years resonates all the more now with uh, a generation who was already kind of fed up with the status quo and they're looking for a cause to champion. And I think we're, we're lucky that like a lot of Gen X and a fair amount of Gen Y and millennials just take for face value that climate change is real another thing is there's a lot more competition 
A lot of folks have time now to create podcasts, Lee, and there weren't, there were almost no podcasts on climate change or solar energy when I started in 2016, man. And I love it. I love it. I get people reaching out to me all the time saying, hey, found Suncast. I'm starting a podcast. Can I, can I get your, can I get some advice? And I'm happy to give it because that's a way of paying forward, you know? Uh, so a lot of folks are finding their voice, Lee. I think the pandemic has, has given us a platform to see how we each individually can have an impact. And a lot of folks are unplugging from the matrix, so to speak, of the traditional corporate structure because they've been allowed to work from home and they don't want to go back. And they're seeing all the reasons why even the work from home culture allows for us to reduce our carbon footprint. It allows us to be more present in our community. I think that you've mentioned a number of the really good things about the pandemic. I also think there's a ton of bad things. Yeah. I don't really know even where we're going to be when we come out of this because it's mm. really affecting how I, people view the world. I don't know what come out of this even looks like. There might be coming out of the pandemic, but I think that we've changed. Oh, yeah. People have just changed in how they view everything. I mean, if you want to talk about getting real about how the pandemic has affected me personally, I, my business has gone through like five lives. You know, everyone on the outside looks at me and says, Nico knows everyone and he's an investor. Whoa, he put that label on his LinkedIn, right? And they have this, I would say, inflated view, possibly like because I want them to, right? I'm a media personality in a certain respect. They have this inflated perspective or perception of who I might be and how, how much reach I have or who's listening to me. But the pandemic was hard financially for all of us. Unless you're an investor in solar. The pandemic was really, really good to investors in solar, candidly. All of my friends who have funds, they've done really well. And if you're selling a business right now, you've done really well. Like, I don't know why there's this fervent pitch for clean tech investing. Like, we've never experienced. It makes 2005 to 2009 pale in comparison. You just talked about trillions of dollars. And yeah. you're asking why. That's why. Because yeah. there are a lot of people chasing the money. And the yeah. money looks like it's going to be there. Yeah. Yeah. And I also think what's nice about it is that they're chasing the money, but they know they're doing something that's good and necessary. Yeah, that's right. So you get a double. Uh, I, had, I was on another podcast this morning that asked, why are the oil and gas industry having such a hard time attracting talent? And I said, well, uh, I think there's two reasons. You can pick your poison. The first is they don't want to look their kids in, there, in, the, in the face 10 years from now and have to answer to why they knew that they could do something that would impact climate in a positive way, and they kept working for Chevron. Uh, and the second is they watched their R&D budgets crater, and they watched their profit margins crater, and they watched their best friend pack all of his things in a box and go home, and now they're sitting in an empty office wondering when they're next on the chopping block, and they see that the biggest source of job creation in the energy sector, and for a moment in the United States writ large, is the solar energy sector. And they're wondering, how can I get in on that? Right? So like pick your poison, even, either because you want to have a way to say, I did what I could. And you, and you want to have a sense of integrity with your children that you recognize that climate change was a thing and that you took action on it. Or you're just going to follow the money and be and it's self-preservation. Either way, I'm okay with it because it is positive action towards the ends that, that we believe are justifiable. I've often said that what's going to help us mitigate climate change is going to be 
extreme weather events. Hmm. And so people will be affected, like you were affected by the hurricane, yeah. and you want to just do something about it, or you need to do something yeah. about it. But I really hope you're right. I hope that a core understanding of what's right mm-hmm. with your kids or what's good for your career, and you're right, there's both of them potentially as motivators. Maybe that's what will drive it before we get to the worst of the weather events that I believe are going to happen. Yeah. I saw a post recently that said, I hate to be the naysayer at the party, and I believe in climate change. I believe in anthropogenic change. I believe that we are doing what we can, and I believe that we won't do enough. You know, I'm not a scientist, and I, don't, I try not to play one. And I, I don't read nearly enough research on what predictions we are making and how and how the you know the IPCC suggests this or that thing or project drawdown suggests you know the the 21 ways that we can reduce climate change i'm in the camp of concerned that we can't write the ship i'm in the camp of like i want to help preserve a quality of life for as many generations as possible so I'm going to ask you to make a prediction. I understand you're not a scientist, but you talked to so many people about it. Where do you see us in 30 years? Where do you see the planet? Do we make it? Mm-hmm. Where are? What's going to happen? Yeah. I think that there's going to be mass devastation, honestly. Uh, and I'll go back to the beginning. For me, the root of understanding of how climate change affects communities goes back to when I was a Peace Corps volunteer, and that town was ravaged by a hurricane they had no control over. And I heard them say, we don't have hurricanes like this. This has never happened in our town before. Look at this. There's not a dry spot on the ground. I'm on the board of an organization called Solar Heads of State, and we are doing projects in the Pacific Islands, Palau and places like it in the Caribbean Islands. And those communities, in my view, are going to bear the brunt of the choices that we've made for generations because they're going to be the first to experience the just the drastic, overwhelming, and catastrophic change to their homes at a time where New York is going to look pretty much the same, Miami is going to look pretty much the same, Madrid and Mexico City will look pretty much the same. But these islands will disappear. Well, Miami and New York have already had some That's right. climate change impact. That's exa- I don't think they're going to be the same. I That's think fair. they're going to have some problems. That's fair. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. Yeah. And for anybody who's been on South Beach or any of the sort of the outer perimeter of Miami during any heavy rain, and, you know, Al Gore shows this in lots of his videos, it floods terribly. There are people that can't drive on the roads to their homes and have to take boats yeah. now when, yeah. when their certain events happen. Well, so, that happens yeah. in Charleston, South Carolina, where my sister lives. I mean, this is a fact affecting more and more lives. And I think that you know, I, I, I wonder how, as a society, we are going to adapt our cities, places where, by and large, we built our cultural heritage on the coast because that's where the ships came in. When you talked about the trillions of dollars that we're going to have to spend on the energy transition, yeah. where my mind went is, yes, and also trillions on dealing with the effects the of climate change. Yeah, climate mitigation. Yeah, so we're going to have both hitting us, and the yeah. more we put early on... Yeah into mitigation, mm. the less we'll have to put later on into adaptation. But no matter what we do, I believe we're going to have to do a lot of mm-hmm. spending on just allowing these cities to continue or maybe retreat. Yeah. 
That's profound what you just said about mitigation versus adaptation. I haven't heard anybody say it that way. You made me think of something, by the way, and I want to say it to you. Yeah. When you talked about it's going to get very devastating, I agree, and that's my opinion. There really is a question about whether we're going to make it, and to me, it depends on the curve. If it only takes 20 years between very, very devastating and destruction, total destruction, we're not going to make it because it's going to take more than 20 years. If it's, an, if it's a yeah. slower curve, if it really takes us to 2100 and we really have the time to start now and the goal is let's solve this by 2100, then I think we're going to make it. Yeah. But I, I guess I'm getting more and more concerned that it's more exponential and less linear in how bad things get, the weather events. A friend of mine posted in a WhatsApp group a meme when the Evergreen boat was stuck in the Suez Canal. And it's one of these classic memes, right? There's like 700 tugboats tied to this thing and nobody can move it. And on the side of it, they had scrubbed out evergreen and wrote earth. And all the tugboats were like solar and wind and biofuels, right? Like all the renewables and and carbon offsets and all this stuff, right? And he, he posted it in our group and he said, I hope I'm wrong, right? And I think I think all of us are are saying, Yes, let's get as many tugboats on this thing as possible because we got to pull it in a different direction. And I hope I'm wrong. I hope it's not stuck perpetually in the wrong direction. And as a society, I hope that we can take action soon enough and at, and at volume enough that we can create the kind of momentum that over time prevents us from hitting that iceberg, right? It allows us to turn far enough ahead that I'll, I'll say a different way that helps us actually not going anywhere near the icebergs, and that icebergs still exist. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're going we're gonna to be hitting some icebergs, no matter oh, why. Lord. Yeah, right. and right. Uh, I hope they still exist. Did the pandemic hurt or help our objective to mitigate disaster? I'm going to get metaphysical. Because we weren't already. Yeah. I think it helped. And I think that the pandemic, I think that it is a... You know, there are lots of examples of historical context where things like this a pandemic are in many ways a course correction for society they are a siren call they're a wake-up call we've talked a lot in this conversation about the way that folks have woken up to the rat race they were in the consumerism you know we're just shortly past black friday it was down by the way was not a record Black Friday. I'm, I'm hopeful for humanity that that is a trend. And I believe in a world where it's possible that this pandemic is a manifestation of the earth saying enough. Not that, that the earth is killing millions of people, but that this is a part of our, our human condition. That we push and push and poke the box and the box pushes back. And right now, what's happening with the pandemic is showing us the weaknesses in society and the places that we have to put attention, both socially and structurally. And I firmly believe that the pandemic accelerated our attention on what's important. I agree, but my fear is that it's temporary. And let me explain. I, I think you're right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do half marathons, and I am constantly getting injured because I'm pretty old and I'm still running, and my body doesn't like me running. When I get hurt, I work on getting better. Yeah. I'm very focused on that. Mm. But once I feel like I am better, I push again until I get hurt again. Mm. I don't know how to I don't know how to set up a balance where I can 
do what I want to do, but not push enough not to get hurt again. There's a book called Run Slow to Run Fast that'll help you. Thank you. That's one. But look, I'm, a, I'm an executive coach. And this is part of the human condition as well, right? Like I'm an executive coach. And part of the thing I help my clients with is being able to balance. Not that there is real balance as an entrepreneur, but there is a, a semblance of balance. There's, there are, there's balancing choices. Yet, as much as I help my clients recognize the need for sleep and rest and departure from work and separating the two and, and having an ability to flow between the two, I still find myself up at 3 o'clock in the morning wondering why the hell am I still doing email? And even if you could do it or I could do it, and sometimes I do go through a long period where I'm much better to myself. Yes. We're talking about human civilization. We're talking about everybody doing it. That's right. And doing it with other motivations mm -hmm. like survival coming into play. Yeah. It's going to be a very difficult, very difficult challenge for us. Yeah, it is. And I believe that, you know, we could, we could play this out different ways. Like if we create a society where we all believe that we can work for the better betterment of our neighbors, then there's always going to be somebody that screws it up. Somebody will see, the, will see weakness in the system and an opportunity to take advantage. This classic prisoner's dilemma. Yes, it is. It really is. It would really be great if some force could show herself for themselves yeah. and force us to behave. We all had to behave because that could save us. But left to our own devices, we're always going to maximize our own games. Yeah. And that minimizes the result overall for everybody, including ourselves in mm. the end. I don't know if you've read uh, a book by James Redfield called The Celestine Prophecy. And again, this is a little bit on the esoteric philosophical side, but I'm encouraged by the kind of thought and philosophy in books like Celestine Prophecy because it talks about humanity going through a cycle of insights about who we are and how we're being and how we're showing up to one another and for one another. I'm going to go back a little bit in talking about your career. Yeah. Because I want to get less philosophical. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. Can you talk about your biggest setbacks? I don't think we can get less philosophical, by the way. Can you define setback? I can't. I can't define setback. And the reason I can't is because, no, I, I need you to do that for yourself. Hmm. I would influence you too much otherwise. I don't, yeah, I don't believe in setbacks. If I did, then I would have to, I believe that I've made wrong choices. I believe that I was probably meant to make those choices anyway. And I lean into the bad results if we want to qualify them as bad, to find the lesson I was meant to learn. So the reason I ask if you would define it is because I'm un I'm, I want to know how what might be perceived as a setback would help someone learn because that's how I see setbacks. I don't see them as setbacks. I see them as opportunities to, to reevaluate my decision model. Uh, I've had setbacks, if you want to call them that, in my business, in my personal life. I don't know that I could put my finger on like the greatest setback, but I can tell you one of the fun, most fun challenges I've had. As I was building this business, I was getting, I was starting to get paid 2019 in particular to go like set up little mini events at conferences and universities, you know, name, notably in this story, Car Carnegie Mellon. Uh, we're reaching out saying, hey, we're having our energy week. Can you come? and help us put on like a little solar symposium and be the MC. And it was meaningful income for my family. And like many speakers and public figures, in March of that year, I was supposed to be 
at Carnegie Mellon and I was going to make a five-figure sum of money and I had a bunch of meetings set up. And not only that, but every other interaction I was going to have for the next six months was canceled overnight and I lost basically, you know, mid-five figures, like an interesting portion of money. And I had to reinvent myself. So I learned very quickly what are my skills, what am I good at, what will people pay me for? And I reapplied all of that and I, in three weeks, created my own event. As I was, I did one of the first virtual events in the in the energy space. That's awesome. And I have since then made more than a hundred thousand dollars in virtual events, and it's not the core part of my business. I actually made a decision to pull back and not do it as a core part of my business because it it's not something that I want to be the best at. Yeah. So, the pandemic, but bringing it full circle, was a setback from my from a revenue perspective. But you know what it gave me? It was the first time, and this is a common story, it was the first time in my children's life that they had seen daddy for more than a month consecutively. Never had my son ever seen me for 30 days without fail. That's profound. I had a three-year-old when we moved to Mexico, and we were in Mexico when the pandemic hit. I had a three-year-old, and he doesn't know what life is like without daddy at home. He doesn't have consciousness of daddy traveling. So... I used to think that I had to travel to make money. So it was a huge setback for me to not be able to travel. It was an opportunity for me to spend time with my kids, which is why I started this business to begin with. It was an opportunity to rethink how I make money. And I went from producing one podcast a week to two. And I've done more in the last 18 months in revenue and in impact in numbers of visibility how like how our message is getting out there and helping people than i did in the five years prior that's awesome man let me turn it around and ask what success are you most proud of as a podcaster who asks this question a lot i'm comfortable in the uncomfortableness of having to answer it You're getting the real me, Lee. Just take your time. Uh, I'm sure you've heard the story. Guy's out on the beach. There's all these starfish washed up, and he's throwing them back one by one. And His friend walks up and says, what are you doing? He says, I'm throwing these starfish back. So there's thousands. You'll never save them all. It's meaningless, the work you're doing. He said, as he picked another one up and threw it back, it's not meaningless to that one. I've had dozens of people just call to thank me because somewhere along the way, I helped them with an insight that helped them make a choice that led to a job that gives them meaning. But that's not what I'm most proud of. In the arc of history, they their children won't remember me. But I have three children. And they take as biblical truth that climate change is real, that solar energy is a solution that everyone should embrace. 
And the daddy's famous. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know what they'll grow up to be. But I am certain that the people they influence will be through the lens that climate change is real. And we have a priority. But I'm certain that the people that they reach, in whatever way they find to do it, will see how clearly they believe climate change is real. We have an obligation to address it. And there are solutions in our hands right now that we can do meaningful work pursuing. That's what I'm proudest of. Those three boys, they're going to change some lives. And I know that I've planted enough of a good seed that they're going to do it in a way that is climate positive. And you should be proud of the lives you've changed. You've changed mine for the better. Thank you. So thank you. No, thank you. What advice do you want to give my listeners mm. with regards to mitigating climate change? You don't need permission. And nobody's going to give it to you anyway. I think a lot of folks in our generation were raised to believe that we were either inside of the circle or we were watching from the outside. And as we've discussed, the pandemic has shaken all of that up. It's a snow globe of chaos around the world. And you don't need to permission to walk away from your job and start whatever passion project you think needs to exist. You don't need permission to do it on the side. And if you aren't sure how or when or why or what transferable skills you already possess, you have the luxury in this digitally connected world of podcasts like this one and mentors that many of us were not afforded to encourage you to do something. The advice is just start now. Like you're thinking for months or weeks or days or years like I was about a thing that you could be doing. But self-sabotage or insecurity or time or money is limiting you. And I'm telling you now that none of those things are real. They are only real because we want them to be real. Those things aren't real, but climate change is real. That's exactly right. I have a corollary to your statement that you don't need permission. Yeah. If you influence somebody so much that they do ask you for permission, mm. give it. Give permission if people yes. are asking that's it of you. That's so good. Oh, that's so good. There are so many leaders who need to hear that right now. I'm thinking of my kids. Mm. Can you give an example of how that might actually look? Yes. My children are doing their own reflection on mm. life, and it might mean career change. And they certainly don't have to ask for my permission, and they're really not asking my permission. Mm. But when they tell me they're thinking about these things, yeah. I can see that it makes them feel good that I'm with them, that yeah. I'm saying, don't worry about the money right now. Do, do what you think is right or pursue your dreams. Yeah. So I think you should just let people or help them or advise them yeah. to pursue their dreams. You know, folks look at us and they think, oh, these guys must get a million emails a day. Uh, who am I to bother them? 
I thought the same thing when I wanted to talk to podcasters or I wanted to talk to people like Jigger Shaw. You'd be surprised, dear listener, how few people actually do reach out to us and ask for insight, advice, help. So if you have a thought in the back of your head, I should reach out to name public figure. I just encourage you to do it. A, back to my first advice, you don't need permission. B, don't live with regrets. I'd rather take action and fail. It's a pretty common refrain that mm-hmm. not trying is the same as a no. Yeah. So you might as well try. That's right. Worst you could do is get the no. That's exactly right. That's yeah. exactly right. You know, I do improvisational comedy. Yes, I do know that. music improv. And you're going to fail a lot. So you have to just mm. suck it up. You have to just accept failure and realize that without risking the failure, you can't have the incredibly great moments. And there are so many great moments. Mm. So you have to risk failure. I want to have you on my podcast to talk about how that looks in the real world and what ways, tools, people can leverage to risk failure and, and preserve confidence in doing so. I'm happy to talk to you about it. But you're on my show now. <laughs> I love turning the mic on you, though. <laughs> well, I'm going to give you an opportunity. So do you have any questions for me? As you have now done more than 100 of these interviews with thoughtful people addressing climate change or being ambassadors for it, what have you changed your mind about? I would say that I came into this thinking that mostly it was technology that was going to save the day Mm -hmm. because technology is so quick to change Mm -hmm. and to improve things that we had a very good shot at it. All we had to do was start investing and that we needed a lot more people engaged, which I still think, but here's why it was wrong. So many people are engaged. So many people care about this. It's still not enough, Yeah. but it is way more than I thought. And technology, while it's very important to make the transition as easy as possible for people and economic as possible for people, it's not the solution. In the end, people are the solution. I think that people don't like change. Yeah. They hate change. Mm-hmm. They hate change so they don't stop smoking for the most part. They hate change so they don't go on diets mm. and get in physical shape. And this is asking that kind of change from everybody. Yeah. And I don't know that the human race has it in it, and I'm very concerned. Yeah. Thank you for that answer. That's good. On that, I'm going to wrap this up, and I'm going to wrap it up with a... Rap. You were in Guatemala and you felt their pain. You were in the Peace Corps and you experienced their hurricane. You don't want to be irrelevant. You want to have immunity. That's why you connect with the entire community. There was a time when your wife said, Honey, I know you're helping others, but you're not making money. You're obviously quite a self-reflector. You're also a natural connector. Fred Cop, your mentor, the message that he sent was do the solar thing. It's an experiment. You've set up a media company. We love Suncast. And you like to pay it forward because it's a blast. You believe you've got to try. That's how you sharpen your axe. And you said you don't believe in setbacks. You put all your effort in pursuing your mission. And you want to tell others you don't need permission. 
Thank you so much for giving us a peek. Oh, it's very obviously that you always seek, oh, to become better and better. You want to be strong, except where you're weak. Oh, thank you very, very much, Nico. I love, I love the raps, man. Nico and I became extremely emotional as we discussed his origin story, his family, the effects of climate change that he's seen firsthand, and his efforts to help save our planet. I found him tremendously inspiring, which I also find he brings to his excellent podcast, Suncast, twice a week. Please check it out. If you have comments or questions about the Climate Champions podcast series, please visit my website at crevatteenergyinnovations.com and drop me an email. I would love to hear from you. And if you're enjoying the episodes, please subscribe, rate it five stars if you're an Apple user, and tell your climate-concerned friends about it. I was touched when Nico talked about, even with all the negative impacts of the pandemic, his success reinventing himself, developing new business models, and most of all, being able to spend so much quality time with his family and inspiring them to be future leaders mitigating climate change. Mm -hmm.